Well, I love, uh, I love being a Chicagoan. When I go out and visit other places, come back and say, I, I love this city. And I love that all that's in this city of Chicago. A couple years ago, though, Erica and I were kind of struck by how much how we realized that we hadn't visited a lot of the things that are so prominent in this city. And I know I've, I've talked to others before who will say, yeah, you know, yeah, the Field Museum, I haven't been there since I was like in third grade field trip. Um, if, you've re- if you're from Chicago... You know the museums are there, the Museum of Science and Industry, Shedd Aquarium, these, these great locations that people come from out of state to come in and visit, and yet here we are living here, and we really kind of take it for granted, don't we? And on top of it, if you're in Chicago, you can get to the library and get a free pass to go to these museums. And yet people are coming from out of state, paying $20, $25 to get in because they're excited about it, and we're like, eh, get it for free at the library, you haven't gone since third grade. And I, I got thinking about that. I was like, you know, the familiarity of being from Chicago does lead us to take for granted the beauty of it, the things that are right there on our fingertips. And start thinking, familiarity does have a way of doing that, doesn't it? The more familiar we are of something, the more we tend to take it for granted and even neglect it. And I think that is so true of the Holy Spirit. If you were raised in a church or you've been around a church setting and you were taught the Bible, you were taught that the Holy Spirit lives in those who are children of God. That He takes residency in us at the point of our conversion. 1 Corinthians six nineteen says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? You are not your own. You were bought with the price. Therefore, honor God with your body. But our, our bodies are, then, are said to be temples in which the Holy Spirit lives inside of. Romans 8 tells us that those who do not name the name of Christ do not have the Holy Spirit. But if we belong to Christ, then we do have the Spirit of God. And even so beautiful on top of that is Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 that tells us that the Holy Spirit is a seal of our guarantee of our inheritance. So not only does the Holy Spirit live inside of all who are children of God, but He's taken up permanent residency in us and seals us for eternity. That's beautiful. Think about this. God lives inside of you. God has taken residency in your fallen body. And yet we become so familiar with that that it's like, eh. We, we, we begin to take that for granted. And that's kind of what sparked our desire to do this series on the Holy Spirit. Because often we, we, we tend to forget how beautiful a thing it is that God has sent His Spirit to guide us. And there's so many controversies, so much discussion about the Spirit that we, we tend to, to forget the beauty of who He is. And the reason He has come to live within us. So for several weeks now, Pastor Ralph and I are going to look at various passages in the Scripture. Looking at what does it mean to to, to receive the Holy Spirit upon your trust in Christ. What does a Spirit-filled life really look like? What is the fruit of the Spirit-filled life? How does that contrast to the way we used to be apart from Christ? What role did the Spirit play in our prayers? How does He respond to our prayer and fasting? We're going to look at these kinds of things 
in the weeks ahead. So we can have a bigger idea and, and, and let the, the, the familiarity of the Spirit not become something we neglect, but something we glory in and we worship God for. So I'm eager to open God's Word with you this morning. We're going to start in John chapter 16 and work our way to Acts 1. And we're going to use that passage in John as a springboard into Acts chapter 1. And seeing from the start what Jesus says about the Spirit, and then what we see the Spirit doing in the book of Acts. But before we get into the Scriptures, I'm eager to pray first, because I really need God's help. We need the Lord's help to open our hearts and our minds to hear His Word and to let His Spirit truly do a work in us in a time before us. So let's, let's pray together. Father God in heaven, your name is holy. And oh God, you love us so much and it just is beyond what we can understand. Why, God? That's who you are. And God, you've given us your spirit and upon your spirit I lean right now, God, praying that your spirit would empower me afresh, fill me afresh to speak through me to work in the lives of these brothers and sisters who are here today. Lord, we are here to worship you, God. And by God, we say you, the triune God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Spirit, we worship you, O God. And we want our hearts to go to you as you teach us now. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see the beauties in your word that our hearts might be stirred in action. So we commit ourselves to you, O Lord. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. John chapter 16, verse 7, is where I want to begin. Before I read that verse, let's think about Jesus for a moment. He turned water to wine, didn't he? He healed blind men. He cast demons out of that man in Mark 5 that was so bound that not even chains could hold him. He raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He healed that bleeding woman. He calmed the sea. He did many glorious miracles, mighty things. And yet here in 16 verse 7 of John, he makes a statement that is really hard for many to swallow. Jesus says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. John chapter 16 is part of what's called the upper room discourse. It's the conversation Jesus had with his disciples the night he was betrayed. It starts out in John chapter 13 with the washing of his disciples' feet. During this upper room discourse, during his time there in the upper room, he would celebrate the Lord's Supper with his disciples. And he teach them many things. But some of the things he taught them were difficult for the disciples to hear. In chapter 14, verse 28, he tells his disciples he's going to leave them. He's leaving them. And he says it again here in 16.7. This was hard for the disciples to understand. Why are you leaving us, Jesus? Why now? In chapter 15, verse 19, he tells the disciples, after I leave... The religious leaders, they're going to hate you. 
And then in verse 20, he says, their hatred is going to turn into persecution of you. In chapter 16, verse 2, he tells them that you're going to be cast out of the synagogues. And remember, for a Jewish person, this was the fabric of their social lives. You're going to be cast out of the synagogues. And then in the end of verse 2 of chapter 16, he says, And some will see that they are doing God a service when he put you to death. Hard words indeed. Picture yourselves with the disciples. Jesus, you told me you're going to leave us. You, you told us we're going to be hated, persecuted, cast out of the synagogues, and even put to death. This is hard. And Jesus tells them in chapter 16, verse 4, But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you remember that I told them to you. So when these things happen, you're not surprised. But then the question is, but why are you telling us now this then, Jesus? Why why are you telling us this now? Well, he says it there in the next part of verse 4. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? And he says, because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. And imagine disciples, yeah, sorrow has filled my heart. You're leaving us, things are going to get bad. Sorrow has filled your heart. But it's not like Jesus is like, you know, it's all going to be just fine. It's just going to be fine. But he does offer them a word of encouragement, maybe unlike they expected. Because what did he say? The fact that I'm leaving may cause you sorrow, but nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go. Now, when I think of advantage, I'm a sports fan. I think of home field advantage. If you got home field advantage, you're better off than when you're on the road, right? You have an advantage over the other team. When we think of things that are to our advantage, they benefit us. When we kill two birds with one stone with a task, that's to our advantage. Or when you move somewhere that's nearby a train, when you can take the train to work, that's to your advantage. But Jesus leaving you, how is that to our advantage? Well, Jesus doesn't keep them in suspense. The very next statement, he says, For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The word helper in Greek is paraclete. And many translations have a different way of rendering this word. Some of your Bibles might say advocate. Some of your Bibles might say counselor or comforter or helper. And the reality is all these words kind of encompass what this Greek word paraclete means. Four times Jesus uses this word in John chapters 14, 15, and 16. And each time he's referring to the Holy Spirit. Basically what Jesus is saying, when I leave this earth, I'm going to ascend to heaven, but when I depart, I will send another in my place. And this other that I send is better off that he be here with you than if I were here with you. That's remarkable. And it begs the question, what is it about the Holy Spirit that really is to our advantage? Because I've thought often, 
If Jesus were here right now walking among us, my faith would be much stronger. You ever think that? I'd be more dedicated to my Christian faith. I'd be more dedicated to Christ if Jesus were here. But Jesus is saying, it's better off that I'm not here so that the Spirit would be here instead. Why? Well, as we saw already, as I mentioned, this word paraclete can mean counselor, advisor, helper. That's what the Holy Spirit is for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. See, when the Holy Spirit comes, and as He had come, He represented God's personal, intimate, and permanent presence presence in all of our lives. See, Jesus in His human flesh could only be one place at a time. But when He sent the Spirit... He indwells us. And we become temples of the Spirit of God. God lives inside of you and me. And He's there to be our advocate, to guide us, to comfort us, to encourage us, to equip us. Jesus calls Him the Spirit of truth. Just a few verses down. Because He will teach us truth. He will lead us into truth. See, it is to our advantage that the Holy Spirit is here among us because He dwells in all of us who are children of God. And He can comfort us in our times of weakness. He gives us that timely word to speak when we don't know what to say. My brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit's presence on this earth now is to our advantage. And this is what Jesus is telling His disciples. But so much would take place because in just a couple chapters later, Judas would betray Jesus with a kiss. He would give up his life and let them crucify him. And so much of what they were told probably made no sense to them until things were clarified in Acts chapter 1. See, Jesus had risen from the grave. And Acts chapter 1 tells us he was with his disciples for 40 days. And he's about to reiterate this point of the Holy Spirit's coming in Acts chapter 1. Would you turn your Bibles with me to Acts 1? See, Jesus had made it crystal clear that when the Spirit comes, He will provide God's permanent and intimate presence in our lives. But the Spirit would not only provide God's presence, but He would also provide God's power in our lives. Let's read Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. This is Luke writing. He says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all things Jesus began to do and teach until the day when He was taken up after He had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen. To them He presented Himself alive after His suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Let's pause right there. This is what Luke is telling this man named Theophilus. That for 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus showed himself to be alive with convincing proofs to his disciples. He had indeed risen from the dead. But he also began to teach them about the kingdom of God. And the third thing he does is in verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them. This is the third thing. Not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, 
For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. See, Jesus showed himself to be risen from the dead. He taught them about the kingdom of God. And he told them to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come. That same Holy Spirit he talked about in John's chapters 14, 15, and 16. The comforter, counselor, paraclete, the advocate, the helper. He's coming, but wait in Jerusalem. With these things in place, the disciples are probably wondering a lot of different things. They know they're on the cusp of something grand happening in the history of the world. This Jesus, whom they believe is the Messiah, the Deliverer, had been crucified but risen from the dead. That's dramatic. And then when he came back, he proved to them he was alive. He taught them about the kingdom of God. The kingdom. This is, they're thinking thrones and powers now. The kingdom of God. And then he says, the Spirit of God's coming to you. Something big is happening here. But what we quickly find out is the Disciples have a misunderstanding about what God's kingdom is all about. Because they ask Jesus this question in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? See, they're thinking Saul, David, and Solomon right now. You know, Israel's ruled by judges. For many years. And then a kingdom was established under Saul. And then David came. And then Solomon. Then it was split with Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And they're thinking, you're going to restore the kingdom. And Jesus, you're going to sit on that throne of David. Because that's the promise in 2 Samuel. And and you know what? We're probably going to sit with you. And you're going to do a new work here right now. And it's going to be for Israel. God's chosen people. But interestingly... As John Calvin says, there are as many errors in this question as there are words. They said you're going to restore the kingdom, thinking that God's kingdom is about the present, the physical. It's not merely about thrones and crowns, but there's something different to it. They said, are you going to do it at this time? No, he's not going to do it at this time. And they say, are you going to do this for Israel? But we're going to see quickly here, God's plan is more than just Israel. But it's for Gentiles too. So the disciples are probably like, is is this the time now, Jesus? They're trying to muster some energy and excitement here. Something big is about to happen. And then Jesus pulls out the needle and deflates their bubble. He tells them in verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. This is not for you to know the answer to. You're asking the wrong question, in fact. You see, they thought God's kingdom was about the physical. But really, God's kingdom is about the spiritual. And God's kingdom is advanced as Jesus is proclaimed. If you remember, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, therefore. And when Jesus died on the cross and was put in a tomb and raised from the dead, he accomplished our salvation. And as the gospel is preached, God's kingdom is advanced. As people come to place their trust in Jesus, God's kingdom is built. And this is what Jesus instructed them about in verse 3. He taught them about the kingdom of God. This is God's kingdom. 
where God is in control, where we submit ourselves to His Lordship. So Jesus tells them, it's not for you to know the, question, the answer to the questions you're asking. But he says, but what you do need to know is what I'm about to tell you in verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Your focus should not be on thrones and crowns in the present and the physical, but an advancement of God's kingdom through the power of the Holy Spirit. You will be my witnesses. You will be the one to declare the good news of Jesus Christ. He says you will receive power and you will be my witnesses. This is a matter of their identity. Something new is taking place. If you remember in Psalm 51, verse 11, David says... Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Because in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit would come and he would go. But something new was happening where the Spirit would come and he would stay and he would take residency and he would empower so that we would be Christ's witnesses to advance God's kingdom. And this is who they would be. Not something that they should do. And I think sometimes we get this confused. That we are not supposed to do the work of being witnesses. Yes, but no, we are God's witnesses. We are those who testify about Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, you will receive power from the Holy Spirit to do this very work. The word power reminds us that this is something supernatural that God is doing that we cannot do on our own. It's a power that they would have from the Spirit that they did not have before He he would come. And that they would be His witnesses. The word witness in Greek is martyr. And this idea that they would testify about Jesus with boldness would often lead them to death. People would kill them for their faith so that their boldness and their the death became almost synonymous. So where even today when we speak of someone who is a martyr, we speak of someone who has died for their faith. But the word martyr simply means to testify or witness. And Jesus says, that's what you need to be, empowered by the Spirit of God. You will be my witnesses. So in Jesus' statement here, We see that there is an identity about children of God, about you and I. If you are a child of God, if you are a follower of Jesus, you will be his witness. You will testify. You should expect God's power to be at work in your life because the Holy Spirit lives in you. And there should be a Christ-exalting desire in you. Because Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. God has a passion for all peoples. And he wants to see peoples from every tribe, tongue, and nation come to know him. Not just Israel, but Jews and Gentiles alike. That Christ would be exalted. And here we see the work of the Holy Spirit. He has come to empower believers. And he has come to exalt Jesus. 
And as we preach and tell people about Jesus Christ advancing God's kingdom, Christ is exalted, is he not? People look at him saying, you are amazing. And that means the Spirit is doing his work through you. See, the Holy Spirit is concerned about exalting Christ. I'm blown away by John 16, 14. You could turn there. It's only a few pages back in your Bible. When Jesus says that the Spirit is coming, this is what the Spirit's going to do. Verse 14 of John chapter 16. He will glorify me. You see that? He will glorify me. The Spirit's, one of the Spirit's roles is to exalt Jesus And I believe that he does it through you and I as we declare Jesus to others. So we start thinking. Jesus says it's to our advantage that he goes. Not only that the Spirit would come and take an intimate and permanent presence in our lives, but that we might be empowered to do the work that ultimately exalts Christ. The Spirit comes to work through us, and that's to our advantage. But Jesus said, remember, He has to go first. He's got to go in order to send the Helper. And this is what we see in verse 9. And when He had said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up. And a cloud took Him out of their sight. Can you imagine the goosebumps? Jesus, you said when you leave, the Spirit's coming, and I'm seeing you leaving right now. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men, who are undoubtedly angels, stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? You almost feel like, I mean, cut them some slack, you know? Like, Jesus just got ascended and just looking there. But this is, this is what he wants to tell them. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And what's implied now is, what are you supposed to do? Jesus said, go to Jerusalem and wait. Don't, don't just stay you know, staring into the sky being stargazers. Go to Jerusalem, wait and pray because the Spirit is going to come. And that's what they do in verse 12. When they, then they return to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were before, where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. They left, went to pray because they knew what Jesus had said. This is what Jesus was telling them in John chapters 14 through 16. It's to his advantage that they would leave because then a spirit would come. And the Spirit will take residency in yours and my life because of Acts chapter 2, we'll see. And the Spirit not only comes to reside in us, but to empower us so we can testify to God, to to tell people about God that Christ would be exalted. This This is why the Spirit of God is at work in our lives. And God has provided His Holy Spirit to intimately dwell in us and powerfully work through us 
to advance his kingdom and see Christ exalted. Well, in Acts chapter 2, we see that Jesus keeps his promise. Chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, this is about 50 days after the resurrection, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. They were here for the, for the day of Pentecost. And at, the, at, at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. See, when the Spirit came with tongues of fire, they spoke in other languages. What languages? Well, it says here in verse 7. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear hear each of them in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. This is a lot of language going on here. What are they saying? What what are they saying? Well, here it says, We hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. Now, I can't help but think what they're talking about here is the kingdom advancing good news. The mighty works of God is that He sent His Messiah to die for them, to give them life, and He rose from the dead to bring forgiveness. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? And others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. See, Jesus kept His promise. He went and He sent the Holy Spirit. And my brothers and sisters, this is the age in which we live in now. The Holy Spirit has come. The Spirit of God lives in all who name the name of Christ. And we see that the Spirit's aim is to exalt Jesus. Peter preaches a great sermon here. Where does he get that courage from? He denied Jesus three times 50 days earlier. Where did that come from? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. Peter quotes three Old Testament passages and shows how they relate to Jesus. How does he do that? Well, Jesus says, He's the Spirit of truth and He will guide you into all truth. And then in verse 36 of chapter 2, Peter said, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's boldness. And look at their response. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said Peter, and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? We killed the Messiah. Where did that conviction come from? Well, John chapter 16 8 and following says, the Spirit will come to convict the world of sin. See, this is how the Holy Spirit works. And He wants to work in you and I in the same way. He wants us to be those instruments that He could use to advance God's kingdom by declaring Jesus. 
And what was the result? Verse 41. So those who received the word were baptized and were added to that day about 3,000 souls. There was a mass conversion because the Spirit worked in a mighty way because the believers were ready for Him to work. And then we see the Spirit bearing fruit in the church in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayers. See, this is the fruit of the Spirit in the body of believers, Good News Bible Church. Oh, it's our prayer that we would be those who let the Spirit of God work through us because that's who we are, people clothed with power. And that we devote ourselves to this Word of God, to fellowship with one another, to breaking the bread, and to prayer. That's the fruit of the Spirit. That's how He's working mightily in the book of Acts. We need to serve recognizing that this is who God has called us to be, His witnesses, who are Spirit-empowered witnesses. But it's always true. Why are there times we don't see that power in our, work, in our life? Why are there times where it's like, you know, God, I don't see you at work here. And oftentimes, there's a reality that we need to confront ourselves with that we can grieve and quench the Spirit's work in our life. And that's a sobering reality. God can work through you, and He can use whoever, whenever He wants. But we can quench God's working in our life. There are several things I see explicit and implicit in this text that quench the Spirit's work. And this I want us to use as something we ask ourselves is this where I am at? Unrepentant sin. An unrepentant heart. See, if the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of sin, and yet we are not letting Him convict us of sin and respond repentance, we're not going to let Him use us to preach the truth. Let it not be said of us that we have unrepentant hearts. Search your heart. Ask God, God, what is it in my life perhaps, that is quenching your working. I see pride as another thing that could quench the Spirit's work in our life. Pride. How so? Well, if the Spirit's aim is to glorify Christ, if the Spirit wants to exalt Jesus in us, and we are exalting ourselves through our prideful actions, we're going to quench the Spirit's working through us. Pride is about me, myself, and I. Not about Christ. And when you say, God, I see those proud things in my heart and I lay them bare before you. I want Christ to be exalted in me. Not me exalted in me. A third thing that can hinder the Spirit's working is prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. When Jesus ascended into heaven, what did the disciples do? They went to the upper room, gathered together, and prayed, waiting for the Spirit to come. And when the Spirit had come, what did He do in Acts 2.42? They devoted themselves even still to prayer. Because when we pray, there's a posture about us. The posture of prayer is this. God, I cannot do it without you. Prayer says, God, I need you. We need you. We are nothing without you. 
That's the posture of prayer. And oftentimes why we don't pray is because in our minds, we don't need God's help and intervention. And whether or not you admit it, search your heart. I know that in my own life, it's self-sufficiency that keeps me from prayer. But self-sufficiency quenches the spirit because we need to rely on Him to work in power through us to make Christ exalted among us for His glory. So unrepentant, an unrepentant heart is the first thing that can hinder. Pride, prayerlessness. And a fourth thing is an apathetic mindset to the lostness of those apart from Christ. Does the reality of hell grieve you? Does the reality that there are people you come encounter with every single day who don't know Jesus, does that cause you to mourn? Does that that make us sad within? And again, the familiarity can, can lead us to neglect. I know, I see it in my own heart. I see it in my own heart. Become apathetic to the reality of heaven and hell. But again, if the Spirit's aim is to be powerfully working in us to advance God's kingdom, that's the preaching of the gospel to people who are dead in their sin. But if we let ourselves continue not caring so much about the lost, we can quench the Spirit. A fifth thing, a fifth thing that could quench the Spirit's working is not being men and women of the Word of God. It blows me away how Peter quotes from Joel. He quotes, he quotes Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, and Psalm 110, 1 in one sermon on the day of Pentecost. He let the word of God dwell richly within him. And that is, that is, that is a ammunition for us in Christ. The word of God instructs us, and the spirit is the spirit of truth who guides us into all truth. Therefore, we must be men and women of the Word. If we're not in the Word of God, the Spirit's gonna, we're, we're going to hinder the Spirit's work in us. I'm blown away by God's grace in all of this because, man, how we all fall short of the glory of God. How we all find ourselves in this list daily. And yet God is not a God who comes with a hammer, but He's a God of love. He sent His paraclete, remember? He sends His Spirit for His personal, intimate presence in our lives. So God's not trying to, trying to just beat us up, but He wants all of us. And He sent His Spirit to live in us, to empower us to do His work, that Christ would be lifted high. Good news, Bible Church, that's the work God wants to do through us, by His Spirit. That's what he wants to do. God has provided his Holy Spirit to intimately dwell in us and powerfully work through us in order to see his kingdom advanced and Christ exalted. Now what's your role in all of this? How is God calling you to be his witness in your own context? Now not all of us are going to be able to stand up like Peter and give this courageous sermon. But I just talked to one brother yesterday who told me he, he turned down a job opportunity because he felt like God was using him at work in the lives of certain people that no one else has an inroad into. That spirit-empowered living 
That's a work of the Spirit working through him to advance God's kingdom that Christ would be exalted. Where does God have your sphere of influence? Because you should be, you will be his witnesses wherever he has called you. And let it be said of us that we are people who take great comfort knowing that God indwells us. But are people of action saying, God, I've got a responsibility to testify. This is the spirit-filled life, brothers and sisters.